0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit providencetx.org. If you have your Bibles with you today, please turn with me to Mark chapter 16. verses 1 to 8. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. There should be some in the seats in front of you under the chair. I don't know if I explained that right, but... Let's go with it. Um, and if you, if you don't own a Bible with you, you've come you've never been to church before, consider that a gift from us. We'd love for you to be able to study the Scriptures in your own time. Um, again, we'll be reading from Mark chapter 16. This is 1 to 8. Uh, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, the Mo- Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early, on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell the disciples, and Peter, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment, it seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning to you. I want to say a very happy Easter to you all. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it's your first time, thanks for making us a part of your week, making us a part of your Easter Sunday. We're really glad you're here. We hope you enjoy yourself this morning. So we're going to be working through, like Luke said, a passage from the book of Mark. We've been in a series going line by line, verse by verse through the book of Mark. We're jumping forward, obviously, because... Today is our celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, amen? And so we're going to go to the end of the book of Mark and just take this as its own, and uh, we'll return next week back to where we were. Uh, But if you're wondering why the horse trough's here, Luke already mentioned it, we are going to be having baptisms, okay? And so sometimes people freak out, a little bit weird. Yeah, I'm excited about it too. The horse trough at the front is a little off-putting. It's a good reason for it, okay? We're going to be doing baptisms, and so hopefully you guys will be able to stay here and enjoy it with us. Now, before we jump into the text, I'd like to pray for us and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll pray. Father, thank you, first and foremost, that this morning of all Sunday mornings, and even though we come every single week to celebrate this Sunday above them all, we thank you for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're alive that you do truly rule and reign and you're seated at the right hand of the Father. We thank you that the truth of the gospel is for certain. That the empty tomb and the stone being rolled away is evidence to us that we can be confident in who you are. And Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would speak to our hearts, that you would open the eyes of our heart to see beyond just the physical. If there be any under the sound of my voice that struggle in various areas of doubt or Uh, Or disbelief, just as you did with Thomas in the upper room, would you reveal yourself now with the nail-scarred hands and the scars in your side? Would you reveal yourself in the spiritual as the risen Lord and Savior? And we ask, my God, that at the end of this gathering that we would be able to celebrate our mouths and the words of our mouths as we sing, being attached and tied inextricably to our hearts as we sing In your worship and adoration, we ask it in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. So chapter 16 of the book of Mark starts in this way. It says, when the Sabbath was passed... Now, this is obviously... The Jewish Sabbath would have been Saturday. This is Sunday now. Sabbath was passed. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him, him being the Lord Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, Sunday... When the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And obviously, there's a play on words there. When the sun had risen, and this would be both the sun being early in the morning at dawn, and also that the SON had risen, and then they show up to the tomb, right? So three three women here of Jesus' followers are they were present at the res, at the crucifixion, rather. We see this in the other accounts of the Gospels and in Mark. They actually watched the Lord Jesus. Die and breathe his last. And now, here on Sunday morning, they bring spices to be able to anoint his dead body, which would have been common for uh, the Jews to do. They didn't want to leave his body uh, to corrupt easily, but they weren't able to do this before the Passover. They weren't able to do it at his death because. They had to quickly bury Jesus. It was a a rush in haste because it was during the feast of Passover, and they had to hurry up and deal with the dead before the high holy day of Passover, and so they weren't able to be there even though the women saw him die. It was, the Bible records, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who actually put Jesus into the tomb, and they had with them linen cloths and 75 pounds of ointment themselves, But the women weren't able to be there. And so what do we see? It means that these women must have desired to further honor the Lord. After the Passover, the Sabbath was over, they come early Sunday morning to do so. Now, this passage is not merely meant to teach us something about the history of the resurrection. In fact, it's teaching us something more deep about Christianity itself. Christianity is often misunderstood as a system of morals or a set of virtues that we are called to live by. Now, this is not to say that Christianity has nothing to do with virtues. It has nothing to do with what is good, right, true. No, of course it does. And the Bible is repute with examples of the way in which God has called us to live. But the crux of Christianity is on full display in this passage because the differences between Christianity and every other religion is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A real man, a real person who lived in a real time, in a real place, who actually underwent trials, and I mean legal trials, was convicted of something he did not do. He had real claims about himself, namely that he was the son of God who came to take away the sins of the world, really was crucified on a cross, really did die, really was put in a tomb, and really did rise. This is at the crux of what Christianity is, far above and beyond merely a way of life. It's about a person, the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. Now, these women have traditionally been called in church history the pious women. And the reason that the early church called them the pious women is because of how risky it was and how loving they were to go to the tomb at this time so quickly after the death of Jesus in order to honor him in this way. Now, we're going to get into why it would have been risky in a minute. But first, I want to point out the symbolic nature of their move here to go to the tomb. Even the most pious among us, the Bible seems to be telling us, apart from a resurrected Christ, apart from a savior, we will spend our lives among the tombs dealing with the dead things. This is Christianity's message to the world. In other words, any religion that only deals with a way of life but doesn't deal with the underlying problem of sin and the need for a resurrected Savior in the end is found wanting. The scriptures are explicitly clear on this. However well-meaning you and I are, however righteous we may seem to be, all of our activities are merely akin to applying perfume to a corpse. That's what the Bible says. Christianity teaches us something greater than mere virtuous living is necessary to be justified before a holy God. The New Testament writers seem to be making this case over and over, none more than Paul the Apostle. Let's read what he says in Romans 3. This is from Paul the Apostle. He wrote over half of the New Testament. Most say almost two-thirds of the New Testament is written by Paul. Here's what he says. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, All have turned aside together, and they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So Paul has a pretty chipper view of humanity. Then he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that what every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul says, The law or the virtues and the morals and the standards by which God has spoken to us in the scripture can tell us what is good. It can tell us what is righteous, but it has no ability to make us righteous. It has no ability to make us holy. Another way to see it would be that the virtues, the morals, the standards, the law of the scriptures is like a coroner. The coroner shows up after the ambulance has come, after the medics have done their work, after they've tried to revive and realized that they can. And then the coroner shows up and he has one job and it's to pronounce death. That's what the law does. It shows up to us, it inspects all of us, and listen to me, the most pious Christian in the room who has the most impeccable moral record and the person who just happened to show up and you realize just now that you got duped. Oh man, they told me it was gonna be free coffee, not this guy. Both of them, when they were inspected by the law of a holy and perfect and righteous God, were found dead in their trespasses and sins. This is Paul's theology. This is what the Christian faith says. The coroner shows up and pronounces death. And this is what the law does. Paul sums it up in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Listen to what his summation of the human condition is. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, And death through sin, so death spread to all men because why? Because all sinned. So the Christian's theology is that Adam, through his sin, we are all sinners by nature. But then Paul says, just in case you think that's unfair, don't worry, it didn't take us long to get about the business of sinning right after birth. This is why, if you're a parent in the room, you know that you don't have to teach your children to be bad. You ever notice this? You didn't have to teach them to bite, they just know. The moment they have teeth, they eat and bite. You don't have to teach them to do things like lie to you. Did you eat that cookie? No one had to teach them to say no with chocolate on their mouth. No, because why? Because not only are we sinners by nature, we're sinners by choice. This is Paul's indictment of all of humankind. Now, the passage goes on in Mark 16. The women show up to the tomb and they ask a question. And I want to point out what that question is because it's one of those moments where, if we're not careful, we kind of pass it by. They say in verse 3, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Now, they are troubled, but they're not troubled for the same reasons that I've just mentioned to you. They're not troubled because of sin. Just as most of us go through our lives dealing with dead things, not troubled by the fact that the biggest problem that could face humanity, still faces us all, namely sin. And these women are no different. They're trying to do what's right. They're trying to, as most of us do, try to do the right thing every day as best as we possibly can with a lot of mixed-up motivations. So they show up. Now, why are they troubled? Well, they're troubled for a number of reasons. The Bible tells us that soldiers, Roman soldiers, guarded the tomb they were put there by Pilate at the behest of the Jewish leaders because they knew that Jesus' disciples had been speaking about Christ's promise to rise on the third day. So the Jewish Sanhedrin went to Pilate and said, put your Roman soldiers out here and do not let anyone for any reason go into that tomb because his disciples will steal his body and they'll say he's alive. So Pilate permitted this. He let the soldier stay on the outside of the tomb. Then they rolled a massive stone in front of the entrance of the tomb. And lastly, they put a Roman seal on the front of it. And this Roman seal would have been a message to everyone who saw this tomb that if you mess with this tomb, you will have the full force and authority of the Roman government fall upon your head. They will come down on you hard and swiftly. Now you might be saying, well, this is no big deal, but if you were there at the crucifixion of Christ, you would know what it would mean for the full authority and power of the Roman government to come down on your head. It was no small thing. And so these women are showing up knowing that all of this is coming against them and they have to try to roll this stone away to get in there to anoint the body of Christ. Now, have you ever had someone, maybe if you're a teacher or if you're a parent, somebody asks you all the right questions but for all the wrong reasons and you try to work with it, you know? Maybe if you're an English teacher, you know this, they might ask the right question in there, but they think they're asking it for one reason and they're asking actually for another reason. But you know, you're just kind of working with them because they have no idea they didn't even read Catcher in the Rye. You know, you're just trying to work with them. Wives, you're familiar with this because it's like every time a husband says something, you're like, well, you're kind of right, but like, let's work with it. You know, that's us. This is what's happening here. These women are asking the right question, but they're asking it for all the wrong reasons. And this is key because if we, if we too fall into the same trap, This is where sermons take a turn, and quickly we begin to be all about the wrong priorities in this passage. And you guys will all be familiar with this when I say it. It's at this moment in most sermons that the pastor will say, what are the stones that need to be rolled away in your life? Some of you were half expecting this. You already wrote this in your notes. You guys know what I'm talking about. What are the obstacles standing in your way, standing between you and your purpose? It's the same issue that we have when we run across texts like David and Goliath and a text that's beautiful and it's wonderful and reveals to us God's majesty. We quickly take a left-hand turn and, and we're missing the whole point, you know, in the story of David and Goliath, no one in all of Israel will stand up to the giant. The people are harassed. The people are beaten down. They're looking for someone to, to rise up and stand on their behalf and, and David stands up and then the pastor says, what are the giants in your life that you need to slay? And listen to me, I want to be fair with this. Um, I I think that this makes sense to us because the sentiment makes sense to us. There are real obstacles that we deal with on an everyday basis that we need the help of the Lord for, right? And so the sentiment is well-founded, much like the sentiment of the women going to the grave is well-founded. But it's not the point of the passage, The point of the passage is not that we have all these giants that we need slaying and we better get our five smooth stones. And I've got five points of this five smooth stones, word of God, prayer, fasting, home group, serve. I just made that up. That's a whole sermon. It's ready to go. No. The real question is not who will remove the obstacles in my life so that I can more effectively manage and perfume dead things. No, the real question is who will roll away the stone and save me from this body of death, riddled with sin and corruption? Who will make me right with God again? This is the question of humanity. And these, these ladies, as pious as they are, they don't know what they're asking, but they're asking the question, who will roll the stone away? You see, we get it all wrong. We think the biggest problems in our life are things like money problems. If I could just figure out a way to fix the financial problems get my budget right then and then alone will i finally be happy you know it'll save me from this this personal hell that i have of not being able to go to the grocery store without trying to you know cut out coupons we think it's relationship problems You know, maybe it's a wife, maybe it's a husband, maybe it's a girlfriend, maybe it's a boyfriend, maybe it's the ex-girlfriend, the ex-wife, the people that, you know, all these different things. If I could just fix this big festering sore of a relationship, then and only then things will be right, and that's my obstacle, and I need Jesus to help me with that. Maybe it's work problems, my boss, or I need that promotion, or I keep getting stepped over, or it's health problems, I'm sick, or I'm fat, or I'm ugly, or I'm this, or I'm that. It's family problems, you know? It's like my my brother or my sister or my mom or my dad or my aunt or my uncle or my cousins or my in-laws, all these different people, we need to figure this out. Maybe it's kid problems. If you're a parent, I can almost guarantee it's kid problems. Because even our best kids, we don't know what they're plotting. We don't know what's going on in that head of theirs. Friend problems, the lack of friend problems. These are the things that you and I every day are connivingly convinced are the biggest problems in our lives, and therefore we look to apply the gospel primarily there. And I am not trying to dismiss those problems as problems. Of course they're problems. Of course they're real. But friends, our biggest problem of all, the problem that if left unsolved will leave us without hope entirely, is that without a Savior, you and I are dead in our trespasses and sins. That is a deep problem. It's not just a problem. It's so significant it should keep us up at night. You and I are stuck in a tomb, and unless someone greater, stronger, and more able comes along and rolls the stone away, we will rot in our sins. And even if all the aforementioned problems, because there's got to be a few of us in the room that are like, well, I don't have money problems, relationship problems, work problems, health problems, family problems. You know, I'm just, I'm working it out. I'm doing great. You know, there's at least one of us. It's like, I'm with Dave Ramsey. I'm on a snowball plan to do this, you know. And here's what I'll say to you. Jesus asked the most question, the important question to all of us. Good. What if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul? And friends, we will surely lose our soul if this problem of sin is not solved by a Savior who's worthy. Now, the passage goes on, and this is why Easter Sunday is a big celebration, right? Because so far, it's pretty dark. But the passage goes on. Verse 4, looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. There's no soldiers there. The Bible records later on that they fled immediately when the stone started to roll away with an earthquake, which, you know, who can really be mad at these guys? That's the earthquake happens, the stone gets rolled away, and then two men in dazzling apparel. You know, it's like, I don't know, like people from Prince's Posse back in the day just show up and just start pushing the stone away. I'm sorry, that was inappropriate. I'll keep going. <laughs> it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, there's two sides of the coin regarding this sin issue that we have to address. If this big problem is going to be solved, the entirety of the Bible gives us overwhelming evidence of how it's going to be solved. If you've ever gotten in a Bible reading plan, let's say in January, and you landed in Leviticus or you landed in Numbers, you started talking about all sorts of different sacrifices and bread offerings and grain offerings and blood and altars, and you immediately were like, I don't know if I can do it. It was giving you, God is giving us a layout Of what must be done in order for the distance, the chasm, the alienation between us and him to be ratified. And there's two sides of the coin. Let's say heads, the head side of the coin, is that you and I must be holy, blameless, and perfect in order to enter the presence of God, to be made right with him again. Now, immediately, hopefully, you are thinking, oh no. This is why Paul's saying something like, nobody's righteous, not one of us. Yeah. Mother Teresa was wonderful. Nope. Gandhi was wonderful. Eh. Pick your most righteous guy, my sorry, righteous gal. Your grandmother, I love her too. God bless her heart. No. And then the tales of this is the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament, tells us there has to be blood that is shed in order to atone for the sins. So they would kill lambs, they would kill goats, they would kill rams, they would kill turtle doves. Blood had to be shed because God was just, and therefore justice had to be done. Now we, of course, know the gospel tells us this. Christ lived a sinless life, a perfect life, and then he died a sinner's death. And when I say a sinner's death, I don't just mean he died because he stood in our place and died. No, I mean he died a criminal's death. It's not coincidental that they hung him between criminals. It's not coincidental that they crucified him. It's not coincidental that they said, give us Barabbas and released the criminal and put him in his place. It's not coincidental that they hung him on a tree. In fact, Paul says in Galatians that the Bible tells us, "Cursed is any man who hangs on a tree, and Christ became a curse for us. Now, I want to read Isaiah 53 before we wrap up. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy, listen to me, hundreds of years before Jesus' birth. And the prophets tell us how he will fulfill both sides of the coin. Listen to this. This is Isaiah. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, he's going to start talking about Jesus. Remember, hundreds of years before he's born. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus did not have the form or majesty or beauty to entice or allure people into his presence. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Listen to this, hundreds of years before, he was pierced for our transgressions. This is speaking of the Roman crucifixion, nails through the wrists and feet. He was crushed for our iniquities. This is speaking of the Roman scourging with cat of nine tails utilized to tenderize the flesh of the victim to rip hit him from stem to stern before his crucifixion. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. Listen to this. Think about Paul's words. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of our sins laid upon the back of Christ and sent to the cross. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken from the transgression of my people? In other words, no one in Jesus' generation stood up and said, this has gone too far, we're out of line. But instead the crowds cried, crucify him, crucify him. got caught up in a moment. They made his grave with the wicked And with a rich man in his death, this is prophesying that a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea would give his grave and tomb to Jesus only for three days. Jesus only needed to borrow it for a little while. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. In other words, he was spotless without blemish. He was righteous. He was holy. Heads of the coin is fulfilled because listen to this next line. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, grief, and when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, that's you and me. He shall prolong his days, that's the resurrection. And the will of the Lord shall prosper his hand, that's the growth of the church. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, that's Jesus, make many to be accounted righteous, that's you. You ever wondered why we call each other things like brother and sister, instead of like harlot and pimp? Because that'd be more right, you know? If, if we're honest with each other, I know we're in church, if we're honest, that'd be more accurate concerning our moral record, would it not? Hello, scandalous woman. <laughs> Hello, lying man. You know, that's more like it. I mean, have you met Christians recently? I mean, I'm just saying, speaking for myself, you know, if you want to be more accurate, hey, pompous jerk, hey, chubby loser, you know, that's more like it. But you know why we call each other holy and blameless? That's why. Because Christ, the perfect one, accounted us righteous. He looked at you and said, holy and blameless. His spoken word over you made it so. Friends, you are holy and blameless. We think about things like prayer. Do you understand the gift of prayer? You're coming before the Father, and you're not just dying in his presence. No, you come openly before the Father because God the Father sees Christ's perfect righteousness, and he doesn't just extinguish you in his righteous presence. Oh, my. He says, by my servant he will make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He bears our iniquities. He bears all those awful names that we could call one another and probably be close to right. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus was willing to be numbered among us. He was willing to be counted a criminal. He was willing to be counted among humankind like a sinner. And yet he bore the sin of many, and guess what? And he makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus on the cross, as they spat upon the Lord, as they pulled his beard hairs out, as they offered him vinegar when he was thirsty, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He intercedes for the very people who cry out and mock him. Now, the reason I wanted to spend time on that Those gruesome details. And I could go on. I wish I had time. I could go on about the phony trials of Jesus. I could go on about the crown of thorns. They put him in a king's robe to mock him. They scourged him, and then they made him carry his own Uh, bar of his cross down the road after they had beaten and scourged him and when he couldn't even get up off the ground they said Simon of Cyrene to help him up the mountain and then they nailed him there and then they hung him for hours and they mocked him the whole time and I could go on that the crucifixion was brutal they literally created a a word for it the Latin word we get excruciating from literally means on the cross or from the cross that's how bad it was and I say all of it for this reason it's in that context that the resurrection makes sense. Because you may ask, why is it if the death of Jesus satisfied the Father, and oh friends it did, then why did he have to be raised? Right? Wasn't it enough that he died? The answer is this, and there's many answers about the resurrection, but the answer for the sake of our passage is the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the reward and confirmation of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. If the reward and the confirmation of the resurrection were not to be given to Christ, then that would have meant that his sacrifice was deficient and you and I are still in our sins. Paul says, if Christ isn't raised, you and I are the most pitiable of all people on the earth. But Christ is raised. The sacrifice of Jesus was accepted. Jesus said, it is finished. And the Father said, amen. Jesus said, that's it, I've done it all. I've poured my soul out to death. And the father said, let it be so. And on the third day, he raised him from the dead so that all might see once and for all, this is the sacrifice, it's done. There will be no more bloodshedding. There will be no more bloodletting before the father. Jesus' blood is enough. Once and for all, your sins are forgiven. As a certification of the father's acceptance, he rolls the stone away. And the women show up, and they don't even know what they're looking at. The young angel looks at them and says, isn't it interesting? He's a young man, but he's probably ancient. I guess you get to choose whatever body you're going to show up in, you know? He says, hey, you're looking for Jesus Christ. He's not here. He's alive. He says, go and tell the disciples. Go into Galilee, and you'll see him there. He's going to meet you there. And then he has... There's just one line that just kind of like a punch from the angels, like, just like he told you he would. He told them he was going to be alive, and he is alive. Now, I want to close with a specific detail here. Verse number seven. If you haven't been here, in the book of Mark, we've been walking through it, and one of the things that we set out early to make the case for is that most commentators, most theologians believe the book of Mark was written as St. Peter's, the Apostle Peter's account of the gospel story. So Mark is the scribe, but Peter is recounting what he remembers. And this is really important because look at verse 7, what Peter says, the angel says to the women, go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee and there you will see him just as he told you. Why is he at and Peter there? Now, it could be that Peter's like, I'm kind of a big deal. I do not think that's what's happening here. For those of you who are familiar with Holy Week's story, what's one of the most familiar stories of Holy Week? Well, it's that Peter starts off the week by saying, if they try to kill you, I'll kill them. If they try to take you to the cross, I'll go all the way to the cross with you. And we can make fun of Peter, but listen, he actually actually puts his money where his mouth is. They show up. To grab Jesus, he takes a sword and cuts a guy's ear off. Maybe bad aim, but he's serious. Jesus says, no, don't do this. Then he follows Jesus secretively. All the other disciples flee, except Peter follows him secretively. And he tries to get close so he could be near to Jesus. He's promised he's going to be there with his Lord. And the Bible records that as he sits around a charcoal fire, that a little girl starts to question him, and he falls apart and denies the Lord Jesus three times, just as Jesus had told him he would. The book of Luke records that on the third time, the rooster crows, he turns, and he meets eyes with Jesus as he's being paraded out of the Sanhedrin to go to Pilate. And then on the third day, Christ is raised from the dead, and the angel says, go tell Peter, Jesus is alive and he wants to talk to you. Now you got to be thinking. That'd be a little scary, right? Is he an enemy or is he a friend? The Bible records that he meets with Peter and the message that he gives him is Your sins are paid for, Peter do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. His message to Peter is that he loves him. He cares for him. He still called him. He still is going to send him. And the grace that he extends to Peter, he will extend through Peter, and the church will grow. Peter will be the one to stand up and preach on Pentecost, and 3,000 will be saved. And from there, the explosion of the church happens. But it's all in this one meeting with the risen Christ that all of the debt that was incurred by Peter at his denial at the Lord's most vulnerable moment has been paid for on the cross. And you know how he could know that? Because Jesus is alive. The Father said so. The Father said that what Jesus did on the cross is enough for Peter. Now, why is it important for you? Because if you're a Christian, whether you know it or not, Christ called you by name. It's why you confessed his name. He knows you. He has known you. He knows every hair on your head. He knows every sin that you've told others about. He knows every sin that you haven't told a soul about. He knows your hidden secrets. And you know what he says to you? Your sins can be forgiven. Believe in the risen Christ. His desire is not just to meet with Peter. It's to meet with each and every one of us. And not just on Easter, but always It's why Paul wrote to the early church and said, friends, today is the day of salvation. Don't let another day go. Your sins are forgiven. And so I want to close for Christians or those who maybe aren't sure if you're Christian or not with the same message, and that is, let us consider the greatest problem that humanity has ever faced, namely that you and I are sinners and our trespasses will eventually lead to a death we can't come back from. That the story of Easter, the message of Christianity is not that you should stop sinning. The message of Christianity is your sins are forgiven in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we can be certain because he rose from the grave. My friends, the risen Christ changes much about our lives, including our very desires about what's right and wrong. But the crux of the message of Christianity is that you are forgiven of your sins. There's nothing better than this news. And I'm certain of it because Jesus rose. And so I commend to you this morning, believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus. The Bible tells us in Philippians 2 that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the risen Christ. And I just invite you this morning, let's bow our knee now to the risen Christ who is and who was and who is to come. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for everyone under the sound of my voice. Would you now, just as you have for thousands of years, call who you will by name? Whether they be your child or whether they be a wayward child or whether they be that person who is racked with guilt, would you call them by name to yourself and extend that self-same grace that you extended to Peter and that you extended to me? Would you speak with the authority of the king that you are? And we ask now that as we take of your supper and as we sing, that the meditation of our heart, the sound that comes from our mouths, that they would be linked inextricably with a devotion for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you're alive and we can be sure of it. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.